0: Well, hi, and welcome to the Precious Little Sleep podcast. Today is a very exciting day for us. I'm joined with Ashby and Melissa, who, of course, you know as podcast regulars. But today we have a special guest, uh, Dr. Bonafide, from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, who is here to share some of his insights into the um, wearable smartphone-integrated monitors that are sort of popping up all over the place in parenting. Welcome, Dr. Bonafide.
1: Thanks, Alexis. It's great to be here.
0: So, can you tell us a little bit about your professional background and what you do for a living?
1: Sure, sure. So, I'm a pediatrician. Mm-hmm. So, I uh, I went to medical school at Penn State, which is in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and then came to Children's Hospital of Philadelphia to do my residency. And uh, did did three years of residency there. I did a, a chief resident year, and then did a did a research fellowship after that. Uh, and I've stayed on uh, since then on on the faculty here, and and I do um, I do research with most of my time, but also uh, take care of patients who are hospitalized. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's, that's sort of a, a, an overview The the research that I do is focused on alarm fatigue, uh, in the hospital, which is that sort of cry wolf phenomenon. It's what happens when in the hospital, we get lots and lots of alarms that go off. And what we see is that responses to those alarms are, are delayed afterwards. So.
0: Well, and I think in, as any parent who's had a child in the NICU knows it's, it's very noisy and it's almost like incessant alarms are going off. Um, so it's hard to kind of identify what, what's really critical versus what's just the, you know, ongoing beeps and bloops of the equipment.
1: Right. Yeah. We get to the point where it's, you know, uh, often we sort of tune it out, which is not, not what we, not what we intend to do, but, uh, it's, it's just the, what really happens when we're really bombarded with alarms all the time.
0: And I'm guessing, so, so Dr. Bonafide recently, um, published an opinion piece, uh, about sort of the emerging market of, of, well, you, you know, integrated, um, you know, you call them smartphone integrated infant monitors, but but most parents would know them as the Owlet or the Snooza, um, you know, these sort of wearable devices for infants that, you know, integrate with your smartphone and sort of pro pro i guess proclaim that they're going to tell you how your child is doing um they claim that they're offering you know in you know insights into how they're breathing um their pulse rate their (laughs) blood oxygen levels so can you tell us a little bit about this article that you wrote and sort of um how you how you came to write it
1: Sure. Yeah. So my first encounter with these types of devices was a couple of years ago. And so, as I mentioned, I, I work in the hospital and I take care of patients who have been admitted to the hospital. And one morning I came in to see patients and there was a new patient who had been admitted on, on my team. And it was, uh, it was a young uh, infant girl who had been admitted overnight after, um, the, the report was her apnea alarm went off at home. Mm-hmm. And this was in the days before we had the outlet and, and some of these, um, more, more common, uh, sort of high profile devices. And what had happened in the emergency room was that the, the team had, had assumed that this was a hospital grade monitor that the parents had at home
0: mm. that had
1: been prescribed. And, um, so they admitted to the hospital after they did some blood tests and did, did an x-ray to make sure that the lungs were okay there and the heart looked okay. Uh, so then admitted to the hospital and, and we were doing our rounds in the morning and, I asked the mom, could you show us the monitor and, and maybe we could download the data from it and try to see if we can sort out what happened. And mom opens her bag and, and pulls out one of the little diaper clip. Um, like a
0: baby monitors. sock. Uh, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, it was, it was one of the diaper clip ones. Uh, and and at that point, I knew, okay, this, this market is out there and, uh, and, and we need to take, take a position on this and, and learn about these devices um, because we know parents are, are, are starting to use them.
2: So that was in the early days
0: of these devices.
1: It was in, in the early days of the snoozer, Yeah. Yeah. OK. Exactly.
0: Because basically, um, if I'm understanding correctly, what you're saying is that if the alarm goes off and is alerting you to the fact that there is potentially this concern, the parents only real response is to now what dash to the ER. I mean,
1: well, you know, I think I, I think. What needs to happen in these situations and, and uh, it, that'll be really important is for parents who who do end up using these devices despite our our recommendations not to use them for parents who who do decide to use them, I think it's going to be really important for them in advance to have some conversations with their pediatrician about what's what's the plan um, when these alarms go off because as, as really any parent will tell you who's using one of these alarms will go off at some point
0: mm-hmm. yeah, so and you're like the market is just growing for them exponentially it seems like every six months there's a new one out promising to do new things to better protect your child. It just seems to be like really expanding and it's everywhere now.
1: Yeah, it really is There's a new one that I, I just saw the other day um, that is a is a wrist based one and um, uh, again, yeah making making big claims and and you know claiming to be the most accurate one available.
0: Well, and they're so doing far. amazing marketing. So I was looking at uh, basically all of them to prepare for our interview today, and of course they're all using the Facebook tracking pixel. So now my Facebook feed is full of advertising from these companies who <laughs> tracked me visiting their websites that are now trying to sell me their, you know, 300 devices dollar devices on Facebook. So they're right. I mean they're, honestly they're doing a a good job if your goal is to sell products. They're they're doing a bad job if the product is is questionable and that I think those were the really great uh, issues that you brought up in your paper because they're they're advertised really as protective against sits. Um, and they don't outright say it, but there's very subtle language in their marketing collateral that suggests that they're going to alert you if there is cause for concern. And your child's, you know, well-being. And as every parent knows, I mean, SIDS is the most terrifying thing for a new parent. I mean, there is no greater fear that any parent has, uh, you know, relative to SIDS. And so if some, some item, doesn't matter what it costs, if if it's at all possible to pay for it, if some item claims that it's going to help prevent this for your child, it's very, very hard to say no to that.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, and, and that's, that's what really prompted us to write the paper. So I had that initial exposure several years ago, but it was really as these devices were coming on the market and making these clo- claims that were really, really close to saying they could prevent SIDS without actually saying it, because that would get them in big trouble with the FDA if they came out outright and said that. Um, that was what really got me fired up and interested in, in looking into these devices and putting a stake in the ground and saying, look, you know, There is no evidence that these devices can help at all in terms of preventing SIDS or any other bad outcomes at home. Um, so I and, and that's a key point. Yeah. There is
0: no evidence that these really provide any real benefit. Well, a lot of the
2: commenters on the thread that you waded in on on our Facebook group were expressing the sentiment that it really doesn't matter to them if they're effective. It brings peace of mind and that there's no... 200 300 dollars that they're unwilling to blow to get that peace of mind. And I think people are in general not not so concerned, you know, okay if it's not proven to work, that's okay. If it there's even a possibility that it might, it's worth it.
0: Well, Dr. Bonifide, let's let's frame that as a question. So, you know, so you're a pediatrician and, you know, um Parents are coming back and saying, well, I don't, I don't care if there's no evidence. Um, I don't care if it's unregulated by the FDA, which, by the way, I do care. I, I am concerned <laughs> by both of those things. Right. But that was a very strong piece of feedback that we got. Yeah. I don't care. Um, it, h- how do you feel about that? I mean, you know, what would be your response to the parent who says, well, I don't, I don't care. It's peace of mind.
1: Yeah, no. So I think um, when when we have something that provides no benefit, so there are lots of things that in in medicine and and in fields close to medicine have no benefit. So then the next question is: Is there the potential for harm? Mm-hmm. And if there's no potential for harm, I have no problem with with the use of these of these kinds so of. So, can
0: you give me an example things. of of what's something that you see that is uh, n- provides no benefit, but also is not harmful?
1: Sure, yeah. So there are tons of uh, herbal supplements or essential oils are something mm-hmm. I've seen on your on your feed before. I I
0: always the I always see the salt lamps. The yeah. salt lamps that are supposed to like clean the air. And right. I'm like <laughs> thinking of the lettuce bath. The lettuce bath. Yeah. I'm like, hey, that's a cool nightlight. Oh no, it's cleaning the air. Sure it is. <laughs> sure, it is. sure it is. Okay, great. Right. I like your yeah, nightlight. So
1: There are lots of lots of things like that that are out there that, you know, I think if if people want to use use things like that and and they provide some uh, level of assurance or or comfort, um, that is completely, completely fine. In terms of the monitors, I think you know, we can divide things into the possibility for direct harm and the possibility for sort of indirect harm. Direct harm is is not very likely with these kinds of devices. They're generally safe, you know, the things like we would worry about in these devices are things like electro electrical shock or burns mm. from heat, which was an issue with early pu- pulse mm. oximeter devices. Um those are probably quite unlikely um, in these in these devices that are sold over the counter you know they' we don 't know exactly where their components are coming from, but they're probably buying them from makers that are already making pulse oximeter type um, components so unlikely that that these are going to cause any direct harm. The second issue is around indirect harm, which is what i've seen it and I think others uh, have seen at, at other at other hospitals, which is when alarms do go off and patients come into the hospital saying. My alarm went off for a low oxygen level or or a period of no breathing. Um, can you check my baby out and make sure everything's okay? And then you end up with radiation exposure from x-rays. You end mm-hmm. up with um, blood draws. Uh, you end up with admissions to the hospital, which can be time consuming, can take you out of work, can create more anxiety, and can cause costs at the end in, ter- in the form of a hospital bill. Yeah. So those, those kinds of things are happening. Um, we don't have great numbers on how often they're happening. We don't have a great, great way to track that. But when I, after I wrote the paper, I got emails from people in other parts of the country who were saying to me, Hey, We're seeing this. We see false positive outlets in our emergency department. Um, so this is, this is, is happening. And I think that's where, that's where it comes in that, you know, if, if parents are deciding to use these, really make sure you have a plan with their pediatrician. And, you know, that plan will probably involve obviously checking on the baby when the alarm goes off. And if everything is fine, it, it can probably stop there as, as long as the baby Mm -hmm. is, is acting normally in the crib.
2: Now you see the cases where somebody comes in with a false positive. Uh what about all the parents on our page who are claiming they saved their baby's life at oh. home as a result of you know how do we know that there aren't thousands of babies every night having their lives saved? Without well, a hospital visit.
0: Well, so yeah, so just to provide some context, so so we shared a, an article about uh, Dr. Bonafide's research on um, our Facebook group, and uh, got many many responses, overwhelmingly defending these products. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so here we have like you know an expert pediatrician saying, "Please don't use these." Here are my well reasoned uh, rationale for why you shouldn't. And then you know, there's like a hundred parents going, "No, they're the best." And yeah. and that's what Ashby's referring to, just in case people aren't <laughs> sure like where. people that said their child was choking on their own spit up and uh, they were able to clear the
2: airway and save their child. Another who uh, was turning blue in the face and had stopped breathing and they were able to suction the child out before catastrophe occurred.
1: Right. Yeah. So uh you know, I I'm gonna do my best to not comment on on individual people's comments. Absolutely. But I think yeah. I think generally if, if you're asking whether or not there's an epidemic of children choking and dying on the that is that is not the case, right? So um you know, when we think about uh when we think about SIDs, it, it sort of fits into the the larger context of, of SIDs or sudden Un- unexplained infant death, which is S-U-I-D, which is, that's mm-hmm. like an umbrella term that incorporates SIDS uh, as well as accidental suffocation and strangulation in bed. Mm-hmm. And that accidental suffocation and strangulation is actually more common than SIDS. So mm-hmm. SIDS is when a, a, an infant um dies at, at less than a year old and it can't be explained after a thorough investigation is done, including an autopsy and all that kind of stuff. Um that's about fifteen hundred um, per year. And then the rest really fall in the category of accidental suffocation and strangulation in bed. And we can think about those as in many cases um, being preventable. Um, so those are things like babies who suffocate from soft bedding being in the, in there, where a a pillow or a mm-hmm. waterbed you know, obstructs an infant's nose and mouth uh, or when someone rolls over on the infant while the infant's um infant's asleep. So, that kind of stuff is, is the stuff that really, um, I think we ought to be focusing on. Like, what are the preventable yeah. aspects of that? You know, in terms of the, the stories, it's, you know, no, no one truly has a crystal ball and can say what would have happened if the, if no one had walked in the room at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but the, the reality is that infants with normal brains are able to, and I'm not talking about this from a thinking standpoint, but I'm talking about it from a sort of a reflex standpoint. If they are, if they are faced with a situation where they have reflux, they can clear that they have Mm -hmm. the ability to cough and clear that. And it might not be pretty, uh, over the course of, you know, a few seconds. Um, but they have the ability to clear that and, and, um, are not at risk of, of dying, uh, in that, in that situation generally.
0: Yeah, I know a lot since the um, back to sleep campaign happened and we now put babies back on the sleep. One thing I hear a lot is that parents do worry about their child choking on spit up. And I mean, I get that. I had two kids who spit up a lot. And so I understand how that can be a concern. But still, overall, we know that back to sleep does save lives. Mm
1: -hmm. Right. And there's not actually evidence that babies who are put on their back um, choke more often than babies who are put in other Mm -hmm. positions. And we know that babies who are put on their sides of their belly, they die more often of SIDS. It's, it's just... Yeah. That's my what this my is.
0: beloved pediatrician, he, I remember I had a copious spitters as well. And he basically said that not aspirating on their own spit up is like baby superpower. Like they're like really good at not doing that. So... Um, that brought well, yeah, me some peace because he basically with... was throwing up all over himself all the time.
1: <laughs> yeah. Babies have been dealing with reflux since the beginning of time, right? It's it's something that uh, to to be able to deal with that while you're sleeping is, is um, you know, something something that babies have done for... We've for, evolved
0: to do this really well.
1: We have. We can figure that out.
0: You know, we're really trying to model safe sleep and encourage others to stick with safe sleep, even when they have fears that want to pull them in the direction of making unsafe sleep choices. And the idea of bumpers is, is you know, crib bumpers is probably the biggest example that comes up all the time, where we can say, no, no, crib bumpers... Uh, are are hazardous. Children and infants can suffocate on them, don't use bumpers. Um, but then people will always come back with this, you know, oh, but my son's leg got stuck in there and he got a big bruise. And, you know, this is unacceptable. We need to not use bumper. You know, I need to use my bumper so we don't have another bruise. I was wondering as a pediatrician, like, how do you handle those kind of situations and those conversations and help parents kind of stick to the safe plan, even if they're looking at a giant bruise and they want to do something else?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think I I start generally with the science, which, as you mentioned, is is completely clear that things like pillows, blankets, crib bumpers, they're risk factors for SIDS. And and that's obviously the worst possible outcome that, that we could have. I think generally I, I, I advise them to, to think about, you know, who, who are the folks in their, in their support system that can be helpful. And, you know, sometimes those are spouses or, uh, siblings or, you know, others, pediatricians, um, nurses, other, other folks who they are in contact with who can help them have that ongoing, uh, ongoing conversation about, you know, I, I'm thinking about doing this. I've heard it may not be the best thing, but look at this bruise. And so I think thinking about who your, who your support network is. And I think for many of the folks who um, pay attention to your Facebook page, that P- Facebook page is, is a source for that potential support as well. So I think the work that you guys do there is is great in terms of helping um, parents who are in those situations. And I've been there in terms of... You know, I'm a dad to two boys. I have a two and a four year old. So, you know, it wasn't that long ago that I was dealing with that, uh, that sort of initial, uh, anxiety and stress and sleep deprivation. So I know what it's like. So thinking about who that support system is, who can help you walk those, uh, walk those sometimes difficult decisions, I think is helpful.
0: It's really hard. Often we're put in the position of being what we call the crib police because someone will share a picture. <laughs> And we're like, holy jeebus, what's going on in there? And then now we're like, you know, hey, uh, great, thanks for your question. Um, listen, those five things in there need to go. You got a blanket, a pillow, a bumper, you know, the the docket, and and then and then we're in that awkward position. And almost every time we uh, have that issue come up, people get mad at us. Like, <laughs> like we're never <laughs> we're never the hero in that story. We're like, uh, you know. But we can't just let it slide, right? You know, I mean, you have to speak up, but there's, I don't know, no good way to do it and not be the villain in the story.
1: It's, um, they're they're easy to do, they're they're free. You know, there are things like back to sleep, which, you know, you guys have been emphasizing um, for a long time. Uh, Things like not using pillows and blankets in the crib, Um, you know, sleep sacks are totally fine. And that's a reasonable, uh, reasonable approach, uh, as opposed to using like loose, loose, puffy blankets and pillows and that sort of thing um avoiding overheating the baby with too many clothes or covers is definitely uh, uh also a recommendation um no stuffed animals no bumpers um breastfeeding i know which is also a popular um discussion item on the on the facebook page uh is is shown to be protective and de- and does decrease the risk of sids um, pacifiers, I know, is another controversial topic on your on your mm-hmm. page, but uh, has also been shown to decrease the risk of SIDS. Uh, avoiding cigarette smoking both during and after um, pregnancy uh, is the the last uh, the last uh, item. Um, so, relatively simple, relatively boring stuff to be to be totally honest,
2: and relatively inexpensive. Yeah, though. we can yeah. all save money by stopping our smoking habits. Yeah, far less right, than right. three hundred dollars.
0: Well and that actually leads to something I wanted to raise and I don't have data on this but um anecdotally what has come up time and time again and and I again I can't draw sweeping conclusions from this but it's been a common theme which is people who are using these devices and you know what it it doesn't matter which one the outlet the mimo whatever when safe sleep safety issues have come up they use i've seen them using that as a as an excuse mm-hmm. like well my my newborn sleeps better face down but it's okay to put him face down for sleep because we're using the outlet and honestly that that concerns me enormously so if you have you know 300 dollars kicking around and you want to blow it on a device that does nothing because it brings you peace of mind that's your prerogative right Okay, fine. That's your choice. However, my concern is I feel there's a substantial portion of parents who are now feeling empowered to deviate from the safe sleep guidelines because they have this technology that very subtly suggests that they're going to be protective. and I know we don't have data, but that's honestly, I think is my number yeah, one Yeah, no, I have that one.
1: And, and there's another that I'll mention in a second, but I agree completely. And, and you know, the, the the potential problem there is, you know, if if they're in a situation where the baby does begin to suffocate or a uh, parent rolls over on the baby and doesn't realize it, just because you have that monitor in place doesn't mean that by the time that monitor goes off, it doesn't mean that you can rescue that baby which is a really sort of sad and scary thought. But, um, you know, if you're in that situation, the baby has started to suffocate. It does not mean that when that alarm goes off that there's anything you can do at that point. So um, I would definitely not use it as an excuse for for unsafe sleeping habits.
0: Brutal. (laughs) Brutal. Uh, so, what's next for you in terms of, um, you know, how do we, you know, what, what could we hope to have happen to help expand our thinking or our understanding of these devices? Do you think that this would be something that you would be able to get some funding for research on? Are we hoping that the American Academy of Pediatrics might, um, do something like how? How do we move forward on this? Because as you mentioned, the market is large. There's more and more products coming out all the time. They're showing up on these, you know, baby shower gift lists um, left and right. Um, you know, can we expect some research to happen? Can we just wait? Yeah, and hope? yeah. So um, the,
1: there, there are interesting things going on in in sort of two two domains. I think the one that I'm I'm most excited about is. There are some good things about these types of devices for children who do need to be monitored, right? Um the problem is mm-hmm. that none of them have gone through that FDA clearance process yet. Um but what I've heard is that Owlet has submitted a 510k application, which is what you send to the FDA when you have a new medical device that is that mm. you know needs to be evaluated. And there are some situations where there are children and and, and infants who need monitoring at home for because they have different types of of chronic illnesses, either lung disease or heart disease, that kind of stuff. So what's cool about the Owlette, for patients who need monitoring a medical version of the Owlette, which is what they've submitted this proposal for, could be really great for, for families of, of kids who need that, that level of monitoring, um, you know, because they're on oxygen all the time or they're on a ventilator at home, things like that. Mm-hmm. The, the fact that it's wireless, the fact that it has this nice little form factor with the sock. For parents who are used to dealing with monitors that have wires and things like that um, to mm-hmm. take care of their chronically ill babies, something like the Owlette could be a really a really helpful, um, a really helpful tool for them. Now that's assuming that this is for, for infants who have a medical reason to require monitoring. So the other half of the, or much more than half of the, of the population is infants who, who do not have any reason to be continuously monitored in terms of their mm-hmm. heart rate and, and pulse ox. And I think regardless of what we know about the devices in terms of their accuracy and things like that, which at this point we still don't know anything, but, um, regardless of if we, even if we show that they are accurate, there's still a question of what would their place be in the baby nursery at home. And and I really, as a as a physici- physician and a, and a dad as well, I really don't think this type of monitoring has a role in, in, in the nursery of, of healthy babies. It's not really giving you any information that you can expect to be helpful. And we know things like babies occasionally will have unimportant changes in their heart rate or their oxygen levels that... Get better all on their own, don't require any types of medical intervention, but would set off alarms uh, in in that kind of a scenario. So, I just I didn't. So how how go ahead?
2: Oh, how would you counsel a parent who came in? I mean, a lot of the mothers on our page express they're they're just so filled with anxiety. I would you address that more as a postpartum anxiety issue then? I think there's kind of no amount of, well, there's no evidence for this. It's going to kind of assuage that anxiety.
0: That anxiety. The, the, the voice of anxiety is far louder than the gentle right. pediatrician saying, please don't buy this. So do you counsel people in the direction of help for postpartum depression
2: and anxiety in that situation? <laughs>
1: Well, if if they truly are showing signs of postpartum anxiety or, or postpartum depression, I would, I would absolutely, you know, make the appropriate, uh, appropriate referrals in that situation. I think what's, what's much more common is something that doesn't quite meet the level of a clinical diagnosis, mm-hmm. but is sort of that, yeah. that level of anxiety that, that is pro- probably affects more than half of, of parents, uh, put it, put in that situation. And, you know, I, I think, you know, as a, as a, you know pediatrician and and someone who really focuses on on the science I I try to share the science part if they say mm-hmm. you know I still want to try it I say okay here are the things that we need to talk about uh and we need to talk about what's going to mm-hmm. happen when an alarm goes off at home and wakes you up in the middle of the night and you go running into that room um and I think having that conversation and it it might be a different plan than you know when when parents talk to their own pediatrician they might come up with a different plan than than what I would come up with my with my individual patients and that's okay but I think it's important to have that plan and to know what you're going to do in that in that scenario.
0: And and I want to come back to the point you made earlier cuz I think this is really critical and to all the people who said, "Well, it's, you know, it's just peace of mind. It bought me peace of mind." The other theme that we saw in many many comments was, "Yeah, you're going to get some some alarms. The alarms are going to go off. Um and you're going to freak out and go running in there with your heart rate to the max, you know, thinking something dreadful is happening when nothing is happening." And now you have to make the determination of is this something I need to be concerned about? And regardless of what your plan is, again, that voice of anxiety is so loud. I loved what you had to say about what's going to happen if it's three in the morning and you and your partner decide we got to go check this out at the ER, which is now we're we're into a waterfall of of testing and exposure. That could, in fact, have negative consequences if I understood what you oh, said yeah, 100%. correctly. Oh yeah, hundred percent.
1: Yeah, that's that's a that's definitely a worry, and and it's something that you know that that's that was the experience I had three years ago with that baby who came in with the the diaper clip monitor, and it's it's one that is being played out at emergency rooms all over the country, as far as we can you know, as far as we can tell, um, and I, and I think you know. People are, are learning more about these devices, especially at children's hospitals now. Um, but I think you you may be in a situation, especially if you went to a community hospital that wasn't used to taking care of infants, where mm-hmm. you could be exposed to even more uh, tests and and admissions to the hospital and that sort of thing unnecessarily.
2: Getting sick, acquiring something there. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, yeah, that you can you can just follow <laughs> that uh, you know, follow that path right yeah. right on down. Yeah. And I, I'll, I'll come back to a conversation that I had with a with a parent, um, you know, a few weeks back, who just happened to mention that she was using uh, one of these devices at home and told me that, you know, it only wakes her up four or five extra times per week.
0: <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know,
1: when you're in that situation, yeah. you're already probably waking up three plus times per night in that, you know, first couple months. And uh, that just sounded absolutely brutal to me um,
0: yeah so let me spend three hundred dollars on a device it's gonna wake me up unnecessarily four to five times a week possibly sending me to the ER where I could have subject my infant child to unnecessary tests and you know additional oh that, <laughs> that does not sound like a bargain <laughs> hospital exposure that sounds great i, right. yeah. I mean, yeah, we always have up. to weigh the harm
2: of the sleep deprivation too the parents i feel like that's almost never a factor considered that, you know,
0: there is harm in sleep deprivation. That's harm.
2: Yeah. 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 Well, that's a a whole
0: separate conversation. But yeah, (laughs) there's always this focus on like Oh, you're supposed to just sort of suck it up until they're three. And uh, (laughs) I'm like, wait, no, there's, you know, we know that when adults aren't sleeping that they are in car accidents and industrial accidents and, you know, they're delirious. I had one mom tell me she pulled out of her garage without opening the garage door with her infant in the car. Now, luckily nobody was hurt. But the reality is, is that, you know, being extremely sleep deprived is in fact a medical risk factor. (laughs) Yeah, it's
1: a thing. Uh, So buying
0: a a device that's going to sleep deprive you Worse than you already are with a baby is is probably not a great idea
1: right, yeah, and one other little interesting direction that that you know in addition to the you know we talked about going to the hospital, we talked about the unsafe sleep habits and and another potential area that I worry about is in um, uh, uh, actually reassurance sort of false reassurance in some scenarios, mm-hmm. so there are some scenarios where a baby can actually be sick at home and actually need to go into the emergency room, but can have numbers that would be normal, sort of not setting off alarms on these types of devices. So a baby could have a a, a serious illness, like, you know, sort of a a bad episode of bronchiolitis, which many of uh, the parents listening to this have probably dealt with, with their babies, um, RSV or other causes. And, um, they could have numbers that actually are, are look okay on the on the device, but um could actually be working really hard to breathe and, and sort of be in trouble health wise from that standpoint. Um and and I worry a little bit about the potential that the numbers being okay without without the medical context um could be falsely reassuring and could lead parents to delay care that that's actually important to to seek.
0: Yeah, I mean, like ten years ago, you just had to compete with Dr. Google. Now you have to compete with Dr. <laughs> Dr. Google and the smartphone apps that are proclaiming your health mm. status. Um, and I think really maybe the bottom line is we want to have those individual exposure to our care pr- providers, whether that's a home health aide or a pediatrician depending on the country, um, to really make sure that we're tracking our children's health, you know, with individualized care versus apps or, you know, websites.
1: Right, right, yeah. There, there aren't a lot of shortcuts, unfortunately.
0: No.
2: Now, Doctor Bonifide, what? Uh, I don't know how how long have you been in our Facebook group, and I, what was your interest in joining?
1: Yeah, um, geez, it's probably been it's probably been two years or so. And, okay, uh, I, I think of that because I think it was when my second um, my second son was born, and uh, I don't somehow I had found out that um, one of my friends was was a, a member, and I said, well. I think we could probably all use a little help getting our kids to sleep. So uh, it seemed like a harmless enough uh, thing to do to to join the group. And oh, so you did come
2: for sleep help? I, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, and it's been uh, it, it's been nice. Luckily, we don't we're we're pretty much out of the woods with that now. But uh, mm. it's been uh, it's been a good resource, and it's one that I've actually recommended to other parents who have oh, asked me sleep questions you. as well.
0: Um, yeah, no. And I, you know, and I, it's funny, I, I, I have a lot of readers who are pediatricians, and I, I've had quite a few s- sort of speak out with a bit of chagrin where they're like, oh my God, I didn't realize I was giving terrible advice until we had a baby. And now I realize, like, you know, and I think having a baby in that level of intensity of both love and desperate sleep deprivation is one of those experiences that you have to go through to really get. And then you're like, oh.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I've talked to, to lots of colleagues and it's, and and it's true uh, true of myself as well that, you know, the, the advice that we would give before we had kids was just really not grounded in experience.
0: Oh, and, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so,
1: yeah, it, it, this has definitely made me a, a better pediatrician for sure. Just, just I think
0: we're all better people when we have kids. We were just laughing about like ridiculous things you thought before you had your first child. I know for me, <laughs> I thought I was going to be playing um, competitive indoor soccer six weeks postpartum. Like I actually joined a league. I was like, well, I'm going to have this wow. baby. I'm going to be back in the turf in six weeks. And Oh, it was ridiculous. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, I was yeah, not it's, leaving it's the couch in six weeks. So, um, well, Dr. Bonafide, I want to be respectful of your time because we are running over. But thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for helping to elevate our understanding of these devices and making sure that we're aware of the risks and concerns that we should be having before doling out our hard-earned cash on technology that, that may, in fact, be a lot more harmful than we – um, we're led to believe, and I really appreciate you raising awareness and, and keep on writing those pieces and, and bringing our attention to it. Yeah. Oh, thank thanks you. to you guys.
1: I really appreciate, uh, all the interest. It's great.
0: No, oh, thank you so much. And, uh, hopefully we'll have you back again to talk about, you know, round two.
1: Sounds great to me. Thanks.